y'all. How's Welcome it going? Back. It's Sunday. It's a weekend. Sunday, it's your... Sunday, Sunday. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. It's, it's my last birthday. day of being 33. I know. Yeah. Um, and my... we are joined today by a history ho. I'm here. <laughs> it's our history ho, Eric. Oh my gosh. Also, y'all, this is the History Woes podcast. I'm Lexi. And I'm Morgan. And I'm Eric. (laughs) (laughs) He's joining us today. Uh, He's in town, so we love to have him. Uh, Yeah, man. We've got a a whole... It's a whole Patreon-themed show today. It is. We have a Patreon here. There's one cooking rice and beans in the the next room. (laughs) And uh, we've got got a Patreon story today. Yeah. um, Patreon. Patreon, our lovely history host, Simone. Simone. She uh, requested both of these stories. Number one PR person. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) We will never get a better PR person than Simone. (laughs) She gave us an international audience on like at least two continents besides this one. Yeah, we uh, we are very lucky to have her. Yeah, for sure. So we're excited to do her stories, even though they are a little heavy. Heavy. A little heavy. They're not a little heavy. They're very, at least mine. Mine's pretty heavy too, guys. They're, so like, get it if you can safely. Get, get a, a drink. Get a weighted blanket and uh, a tissue. Yeah. And a tissue, probably. Um, or you can get like one of those things that you got. I bought you. Oh yeah, <laughs> so I got like the best ever birthday present. Um, well, I guess a Mike got me a really good birthday present too. It's a little desk calendar, and each day of the year has a different picture of us or the animals or something that he uploaded, and it starts on my birthday. That is A+. It's really good. But you got me (laughs) this, like, wearable blanket, and Mm -hmm. it's not a Snuggie. It's like a hoodie, but it's like a Sherpa blanket (laughs) on the inside, and then it has a cat pocket. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't successfully gotten my cats in it yet, (laughs) but I am excited to. Yeah. It's going to be good. They are definitely not. <laughs> yeah, the cats are not excited. No. But I have not tried to put Binks in mine. I think Xander, when I'm working, might sit in it mm-hmm. because he likes to hang out in my lap a lot while I work. Yeah. So Also, Penguin can't see him there. Yeah. He'll be in disguise. In cat Nito. Yeah. Oh, that's very good. That <laughs> 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 <It> starts. <laughs> oh, and we're all in our besties shirts. We are you? So Eric brought up for us besties shirts. Um, yeah this this is this is two besties shirt. Yeah, yeah, because I the still have the one, first one. Yeah, yeah, same. The first one was um a cat. In the in the Miley Cyrus wrecking ball pose, um, <laughs> on a wrecking ball, it's very good. But now he got us new ones. Mine looks like um, like a black cat who's in Hocus Pocus, mm-hmm. and he's reading out of a spell book, and he is very spoopy. Yes, uh, and mine is a little kitten, and but it's really not little. It's big, and it looks like a kraken attacking a ship. It's a cat. A crack. A crack. Cat. Cat kraken. A cat kraken. That's fun. That's <laughs> What's on here? So and, then, and then mine is a kitten in the famous Jurassic Park scene of yes. the T Rex, uh, the T uh, Rex, mm-hmm. uh, with the uh, with the flare. Yeah, and freeze! Uh, for anybody who really likes Jurassic Park, I don't know. Very good, very good shirts. We're so yeah. blessed. Yeah, the really abundance. We, right? What? An embarrassment of riches we have this weekend. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah so. got to do all kinds of stuff. We got to go to St. Pete yesterday. We got to go to the Dracula Bar, which is if you're what is it actually called? Dracula's, Dracula's Legacy. Legacy. Okay, we, thank you guys for that because I'll never remember that. I name. always call it Vlad's Revenge. Same. It feels like that should be the name of the place. <laughs> yeah, but it's a lot of fun. It's kind of like nestled back in there. If you guys like wine, like. Or if you like beer, just or just kind of cool atmosphere, highly recommend it. Yeah, the, the people there are really nice, amazing. and like they get you your shit quick. I don't yeah. think that was just because I was drunk; like they were like on it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, came back over the ferry. Sadly, I saw no dolphins. Um, Next and then time. today we we got where I got a really good mimosa with yeah. the watermelon. Juice. I'd never had watermelon juice in the most. I've had a lot of others. We've had like yeah. peach, strawberry, you name it, but never watermelon. And yeah. I highly recommend. Yeah, that was re- yeah. We went to Miguelitos in Tampa for brunch today, and it was supreme. The food was really good. The drinks were really good. I got a Bloody Mary. That Bloody Mary is definitely the best one I've ever had. I think it's because it's spicy, though. Yeah, you got to get a spicy one. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it just tastes like tomato soup. Brunch mm-hmm. is the only time I ever get margaritas. Yeah, is that what you got? Yeah, I got a uh, margarita with a. Uh, 
limoncello in it. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. We could probably make one of those when we get out of here. Yeah, I was going to say, we have we some have here. It's the only time I'm ever like, I want a margarita. Yeah. Well, I get that. It's refreshing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kelly it's made great. the limoncello herself. Yeah, we have homemade limoncello. Uh, yes, you guys told me about mm-hmm. that yesterday. It's very good. It's very good. Yeah. Yeah, we have one of our drinks full of that with the thyme simple syrup and... I don't remember what that one was called, but it was good. Uh, that's good. Goliath or Daniel or Oh, something. yeah, that's right. It was the one from, um, yes, from This Podcast Will Kill You. Yep. And I guess that kind of easily brings us into what are we drinking today? Yeah, Um. so we are drinking the Irish Curse from Hourglass Brewing. Um, it's an Irish red, uh, 5.5% alcohol by volume. The can art's really cool. I haven't um, even seen the can art yet. Ooh, it is pretty. Yeah. I like that quite. I, it's I fun. Like that um, Hourglass puts out a lot of really good stuff. I highly recommend them. Everything you've brought back from them has been good. Yeah. Um, and then, Eric, you're drinking the same thing, too, Yes, right? I am mm-hmm. drinking the same thing. Is that Irish the one Curse. over by on the other side? Huh? It's on Orlando. Yeah, the other side of the state. Yeah. Okay. All right. I may have to stop there on my way home. I Ooh, recommend yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, sorry. Technically, <laughs> they're in Longwood, Florida. Okay. That's really close to where I'll be. Cool. Well, you should go by there and um, tell them how much Michael loves them. And And how much you like Longwood. I will tell them that I heard about them on the History Host podcast. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Do it. Um, So, yeah. I haven't had this. I know I really like reds, though. Yeah. And Irish reds are always We We picked it because we feel that these are cursed stories. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Simone. They're interesting stories. They're very good. They're definitely intriguing. I think it's shit you should know. Like, especially my story. She understood understood the assignment. She always does. Shit you should know, and I know about, and now you're going to know about it. You know who else is going to know about it? All y'all. All y'all fitting to know. So, cheers, guys. Cheers. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's, yeah. It was yeah. malty. It is very malty. It's delicious. Very good. Very good. All okay, right. so with that, since I know we both have a couple of long, long stories here, we're going to jump straight into it. So um, this history request is the history of OSHA, which I knew nothing about. I mean, I, I guessed on some things. Like, we all know, like, the memes <laughs> of OSHA violations. Yeah. And the workplace jokes. Yes. yes. Uh, exactly. I just know that I was... Definitely seen some violations at some previous <laughs> jobs and many construction sites that I've driven by. Um, but as you can probably guess, we didn't get a bunch of work safety standards without cracking a lot of eggs. And by eggs, I mean people. Um, so without cracking to how we got here. <laughs> uh, so as the American Industrial Revolution was raging after the Civil War, <laughs> what a rager it was. Um, Yikes. A lot of factories began to be built, and along with those factories came chemicals, dust, dangerous machines that included belts, pulleys, gears, and mixed into that deadly cocktail were inexperienced and often very young workers. Um, The Massachusetts Report of 1872 described some particularly nasty accidents. These tragedies and the industrial accident statistics that uh, the State Labor Bureau collected spurred some social reformers and the budding labor movement to call for state factory safety and health laws. In 1877, Massachusetts passed passed the nation's first factory inspection law. It required guarding belts, shafts, and gears, protection on elevators, and adequate fire exits. Um, Its passage prompted state factory acts because, as you can guess, people were real tired of dying, into other states, um, and by 1890, nine states provided for factory inspections. Sorry, real quick, can we all just appreciate the fact of the concept of an elevator without sides? I've only been on one, and it was on an airship. Uh, Eric, maybe you've been on one. They're very scary, but, I mean, they're very large. Like, they're very big, but... I remember my dad taking me onto it, and I was probably like six, and there were no sides, and you're just on the side of a ship, a huge ship, and I just sat down. No, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh no, this is too big. <laughs> yeah, no, I've never. I, <laughs> I like, would never. Eric's like, listen to me. <laughs> Hell no. I won't take the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was scary. I assume because it was so big, it was meant for like moving like vehicles up and down, like different, but still. No, like thank it. you. No, T.Y. <laughs> um. Uh-uh. I don't like it. Go on. Sorry. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, The progressive era and the growth of mass circulation newspapers and national magazines helped gain a national movement for worker safety and health. In 1907, 
362 coal miners were killed on the job in Manoa, I think, West Virginia, and the United States' most deadly mine accident. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. This widely publicized tragedy sent around the nation easily because it had new circulated means of media, like newspapers and magazines, um, and that led to public outcry and the creation of the U.S. Bureau of Mines to promote mine safety in 1910. Um, I know you said mines. But in my head, I heard mimes. <laughs> <laughs> they also need protection. The biggest mime accident ever. <laughs> they were trapped in that box for a long right. time. <laughs> they needed help. Um, Bosha has a section on mimes. They probably do. They, they don't. They should. Uh, someone's got to open that box. Um, the uh, Mime Safety Act of 2023. <laughs> Spurred on by the History Woes podcast. You heard it here I'm, first, I'm folks. I'm here to promote it. I'll make a sign... <laughs> Um, in that same year, William B. Hard, and yeah, that's just his name. <laughs> that's his Giggity. name. <laughs> he was a, uh... <laughs> Even if you shorten it, it's Bill B. Hard and B.B. Hard. <laughs> yeah. Well. Poor Bill. His life was Bill Hard. <laughs> well. He made his life through being a muckraking journalist, right. which means he published scandalous news. Yeah. Um, so he published uh, an article in Everybody's Magazine titled, Making Steel and Killing Men. Oh. Based on his firsthand investigations of a Chicago mill, Hart estimated that every year, out of a workforce of 10,000 workers, 1,200 were killed or seriously injured. Holy shit. He urged the steel industry to use its technical knowledge to reduce this casualty rate. In 1908, U.S. Steel formed a safety committee with instructions from the company president to cut the accident rate as much as possible. A highly successful <laughs> safety-first movement developed, uh, from which uh, spilled over to other interest industries and led to the creation of the National Safety Council in 1915. Um, in 1907, the Pittsburgh Survey, a detailed uh, study of living and working conditions in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, had an impact on job safety and health. One of the major topics of the investigation, which was, it doesn't matter who's sponsored by, uh, one of the major topics was industrial accidents. The survey found that the injured workers and the survivors of those killed on the job bore the economic brunt of accidents, even though it was mostly the employer's fault. The authors of the survey agreed that employers should bear a substantial share of the economic burden, giving them more incenti incentive to eliminate the causes. Okay. So workman's comp is being yeah. created. Um, in 1911, Wisconsin became the first state to successfully establish a workers' compensation program. Within one year, it was joined by nine other states, and by 1921, most states had followed suit. Um, ironically... It was as a preventative measure that workers' compensation accomplished the least. Uh, the general level of this type of insurance premium was already so low that there was real, no real incentive for a company to invest heavily in safety improvements to be eligi eligible for a slightly lower rate offered to firms with good safety records. So they just went ahead and paid it. Yeah. Nice. But it didn't have to be safer. Um <sighs> Very few states included compensation for disease, although much was already known about occupational illness. Yeah. Um, an idea that developed alongside of workers' compensation uh, probably produced more significant long-term results. Uh, if the states created industri industrial commissions with authority to establish specific safety and health regulations, they wouldn't need to go back through a legislative process to amend anything. Um, so a workers' compensation advocate... John R. Commons of the University of Wisconsin found that similar organizations were already in use in Europe, and he convinced Wisconsin to create the first permanent state industrial commission, which developed and enforced safety and health regulations. Oh, they have the safest cheese now. <laughs> they do. <laughs> um, this idea was widely accepted and became a guide for future states and federal regulation of occupational safety and health. Um, after the turn of the century, the federal government began investigation into industrial diseases. Um, dun, dun, dun. Yeah. In 1903, the U.S. Bureau of Labor began publishing graphically detailed studies of health and disease in some trades, as well as other safety and health topics. 
1910, the Bureau published a study by a labor law advocate on the horrors of phosphorus necrosis, a.k.a. Bossy jaw. Oh my gosh, but it's um, which horrifying. is a disfiguring and sometimes fatal disease of the jawbone suffered by workers uh. in the white phosphorus match industry. In 1912, Congress passed the Esch Act, which placed a prohibitive tax on white phosphorus matches. The Diamond Match Co- Company agreed to release its patented substitute in- for general use. So I hadn't heard of Fosse Jaw before I read the Radium Girls book. Mm-hmm. Um, and that first girl uh, who came down with all the... Well, I'm sure cover that at some point on the podcast. Um, but they thought she had Fosse Jaw. And her teeth gotcha. were just like falling out of her face. Mm-hmm. Every If they pulled a tooth, it got worse. It didn't get better. Uh-huh. And then the infection went into her jaw to the point that like the doctor was like touching her face uh-huh. and her jaw just detached. And he just lifted her jaw out of her mouth. Yeah, like the bone. <sighs> like, just horrifying. And they thought it was Fosse jaw. Yeah. I'm just now hearing of this and I'm going to have trouble sleeping. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, scary. I have That's nightmares scary. about it now. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember when you told me about that. Yeah. Um, so in 1913, Congress created the Department of Labor and one of its main purposes was to improve working conditions. A Senate resolution specifically called the Secretary of Labor to report on industrial diseases and accidents. The Secretary of Labor, an ex-coal miner, and mine union official didn't need to be asked twice. Um, under Wilson, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, formerly the U.S. Bureau of Labor, started compiling regular accident statistics in the iron and steel industry and gradually included other industries. Wilson sought to establish uh, the principle that instead of feeding men, quote, into the maw of unhealthy occupations, the thing to do is to make the unhealthy occupations healthy. What? (laughs) Um, What do you mean? (laughs) What are you talking about? What do you mean workers have to survive to have experienced workers? You think at some point, like, I understand, like, People, like, but you would just assume at some point, like, businesses would figure out, if we have no people to run our factories, we can't factory. Well, I think it's just one of those cases, though, if you can hire anyone at any age and have them work however it's true. many yeah, we don't hours, have, we don't have the age and gap yet, everyone limit, yeah. is poor and mm-hmm. needs money, everyone's going to work. Yeah. If you make the labor less skilled, you can just hire anybody to do the labor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And during this time, I think that was, like, the process, right, was unskilled labor. Like, yeah finding ways to require less skill for jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1933, uh, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, or Roosevelt, I know that's how you say it, uh, selected Frances Perkins as Secretary of Labor uh, and first woman cabinet member. She brought to the Labor Department a long experience of occupational safety and health with the state of New York. To help assure that workplaces would be, quote, as safe as science and law can make them, Perkins created a Bureau of Labor Standards in 1934. This was the first permanent federal agency established primarily to promote health, safety and health for the entire workforce. The Bureau helped state governments improve their administration of job safety and health laws and raise the level of their protective legislation. Um, Congress enacted three laws as part of Roosevelt's New Deal, which altered the federal government's role in protecting people on the job. The Social Security Act of 1935, RIP, Um, uh, yeah Uh, damn we said it was sad we didn't say it was gonna hurt things we will never see right the fair labor millennials yeah it's yeah the fair labor standards act of 1938 (laughs) r.i.p And the Walsh Healy Public Contracts Act of 1936. Probably also RAP. I don't actually know what that one was. Pour one out for our acts. <laughs> yeah. Um, a movement to protect the, na- uh, the natural environment from the ravages of mankind and technology began growing while the Labor Department was seeking to improve and expand its protection of workers' health and safety in the 1960s. <laughs> Large-scale federal air and water pollution control programs were developed, helping to increase awareness and concern about the occupational environment. Inspired by this movement, in 1965, the Public Health Service produced a report um, called Protecting the Health of 80 Million Americans. 
Uh, which straight to the Is point. Is that the title? Yeah. All right. That's straight to the point. Yeah. Uh, which outlines some of the recently found technological dangers. It noted that a new chemical entered the workplace every 20 minutes. That evidence now showed a strong link between cancer and the workplace. And that old problems were far from being eliminated. There like, are... I know we've said that, like, working in customer service is cancerous, <laughs> but not like this. Not, not like that. Um, the report called for a major national occupational health effort centered in the public health service. On May 23rd, 1966, Johnson told a meeting of labor reporters that, quote, the time has come to do something about the effects of the working man's job on his health. His kind of annoying. Um, the Departments of Labor and Health, Education, and Welfare set about to develop legisla legislation for such a program. A joint task force was then created to combine all departments' involved ideas and to submit a proposal to the president. However, by late 1966, the task force was deadlocked. Great. Yeah. In 1967, it was revealed that almost a hundred uranium miners had abnormally high number, uh, an abnormally high number of them had died of lung cancer since the 1940s. What? Surprise. Up to a thousand more such deaths were, were expected. In 1947, when large-scale uranium mining was getting underway, the Atomic Energy Commission discovered that radiation levels in these mines were dangerously high. In 1947, they figured that out. Um, the commission, in, co in cooperation with the Public Health Service, began a long-term health study of the miners. A number of federal agencies had limited jurisdiction over uranium mines, but none had clear responsibility for them. So there was very little enforcement. Nice. Nice. In 1967, the Bureau of the Budget accepted the Department of Labor's recommendations to enact a job safety and health program. And President Johnson called on Congress to enact the program. Johnson said that it, quote, was a shame, or sorry, the shame, of a modern industrial nation, that each year more than 14,000 workers were killed and 2.2 million injured on the job. Um, but citing inadequate standards, lagging research, poor enforcement of laws, shortages of safety and health personnel, and a patchwork of ineffective federal laws, Johnson argued that a comprehensive new law was needed. The Johnson proposal, quickly introduced as legislation, gave the Secretary of Labor the responsibility of setting and enforcing standards to protect 50 million workers. The bill also had a general duty clause requiring employers to, quote, furnish employment and place of employment, which are safe, safe and healthful. Wild idea, I guess, in the 60s. Um, it gave inspectors legal authority to enter workplaces without management's permission, without prior notice. Violators could be fined or jailed, and the secretary could blacklist, uh, blacklist transgressors who held government contracts. Okay. The Labor Department... So they actually gave them teeth for once. This is, a, this is just being proposed. Oh. The Labor Department would help <laughs> interested states to develop their own programs in lieu of the federal one. Congressional committee hearings on the Johnson proposal began in February 1968. Secretary of Labor Wirtz, who led off the hearing, cited two casualty listings facing America at that time. The military toll in Vietnam and the industrial toll at home. Wirtz claimed that three of four teenagers entering the workforce would probably suffer one minor disabling injury or more during their work life. He, also, <laughs> he also displayed photographs of gory industrial accident scenes. Words felt that the main issue was, quote, whether Congress is going to stop, uh, is going to act to stop a carnage, which continues because people can't see the blood on the food that they eat and the things that they buy and the services that they get. The proposal got strong reactions. Organized labor supported the bill, obviously. Um, a noted occupational health researcher, Irving R. Selikoff, of the Mount Sinai School of Medicine and consumers advocate Ralph Nader added their voices to the support. <laughs> However, industry, industry led by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, vehemently opposed the broad powers which would be given to the Secretary of Labor. I'm shocked. Industry campaigned hard against a, quote, crash program that would undermine the rightful role of the states. Call me surprised. The Johnson proposal failed in 1968. 
I love that for us. Yeah. This is when you saw me start making faces when I was writing. <laughs> uh, in 1969, the idea of a general job safety and health law had gained a lot of popularity. The service contracts of 1965 and the Federal Construction Safety and Health Act of 1969 provided protection to government contractor employees, which had been previously denied to them. Um, and the 1966 Metal and Non-Metallic Mine Safety Act protected non-coal miners. In the context of federal action, though, President Richard Nixon presented his version of a comprehensive job safety and health program to Congress in August of 1969. After his inauguration, he had called on his cabinet departments to sift through his campaign speeches for election year promises. They were to report to him on what, he, uh, what they were doing and to meet these pledges. Under Secretary of Labor James D. Hodgson, who was particularly interested in workers' safety and health, he was delighted to find that in a speech in Cincinnati, the presidential candidate had called for federal action on health and safety laws. The White House asked Hodgson to prepare a bill, and he began consulting extensively with labor and management. The Nixon administration's proposed uh, proposal offered a five-person board that would set and enforce job safety and health standards. Nixon emphasized use of existing efforts by private industry and state governments. The main federal concern would be with health research and education and training, and only secondarily with direct regulation. Legislation on the Nixon proposal was introduced in Congress, and for the second year in a row, uh, hearings began on a national job safety and health program. Hundreds of witnesses from labor, industry, government, and the safety and health community gave thousands of pages of oral and written testimony. In addition to hearings in Washington, there were field hearings around the country at which rank-and-file workers in steel mills, automobile plants, and other industries testified. Secretary of Labor George Schultz emphasized at the hearings that the Nixon bill was part of a continuous historical process. Secretary Schultz believed that a consensus had finally evolved on both and need for federal law and its general form. He implored Congress to, quote, work out our differences and get something done. However, Congress gonna Congress, um, <laughs> impose term limits, mm -hmm. Democratic congressmen <laughs> and some Republicans raised strong objections to the bill. Please vote in every election you can. <laughs> Many felt... That with two departments already involved, a safety board would create administrative confusion. Labor union supporters oppose any confusion? such... Confusion? I'm sorry. Like, how, I don't know how to keep <laughs> these workers safe. It's just so complicated. Seriously? Mm-hmm. Labor union supporters oppose any such board and wanted the program lodged in the labor department. The proposed enforcement scheme came under fire because it only penalized willful, flagrant violators. Critics felt that this would take away much of the deterrent effect because employers would be tempted to ignore federal safety and health standards until they were inspected. Organized labor had backed the Johnson bill, but it completely opposed the Nixon proposal. Uh, it agreed with congressional, congressional critics that the Labor Department was the proper department of authority over safety and health. Unions felt that strong action was needed to deal with the hazards of the workplace, especially new chemical dangers. As Anthony Mazaki of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union put it, quote, The mad rush of science has propelled us into a strange and uncharted environment. We grope in the dark, and we can only light a few candles. Irving Salikov described the suffering of construction workers who succumbed to asbestos from applying asbestos insulation to buildings, refusing to blame any one group. He asked rhetorically, quote, Who killed... I don't know why. I don't know how many people die, but he says, "Who killed Cock Robin?" Selikov's <laughs> answer was, "Sorry, that's not funny." I know, but it's like I don't know how many people died of asbestos. This is the one you chose. I don't know, but he says, "No one. He has been an impersonal, technological death. We have all failed." Early in 1969, two Democrats, Representative James G. O'Hara of Michigan, and Senator Harrison Williams Jr. of New Jersey had presented bills that were similar to the Johnson proposal of 1968. Despite Republican efforts in 1970 to stop the bills in committee, they, and not the Nixon bill, were introduced on the floors of the House and Senate shortly before congressional elections. 
Opponents succeeded in delaying consideration of these labor-backed measures until after the election in hopes that it would prevent passage. The strategy was partly successful. In the Senate, the first to act in the post-election lame duck session, um, Republicans offered an amendment substituting the Nixon proposal for the Democratic measures and came just two votes short of succeeding. Um, with the, the division this close, compromise seemed likely, though. So Senator Jacob Javits, New York Republican, offered an amendment under which the Secretary of Labor would set safety and health standards and a separate commission would oversee Labor Department enforcement, serving as a kind of court of appeals for parties who disagreed with the Secretary's decisions. Senate Democrats and the Nixon administration supported the compromise, and the Senate passed it. In the House, Republican William A. Steiger of Wisconsin offered an administration-backed bill to substitute for the O'Hara bill, introduced earlier in the year. In a major defeat for Labor, which had stoutly resisted any efforts at compromise, the Steiger Amendment passed easily at a House-Senate conference committee, um, and there was a committee set to hammer out the difference between the two bills. But thankfully, when the, when the conferees met in December, they adopted the more liberal Senate bill almost unchanged. The only significant point on which the Senate yielded was the deletion of a provision allowing the Secretary of Labor to close down a plant under conditions of imminent danger, which I think they probably should have left in. <laughs> um, the Senate immediately approved the measure and sent it on to the House. When Secretary of Labor Hodgson announced that President Nixon approved the bill, Republican opponents in the House abandoned plans to fight the conference committee version and passed it under duress, it seems. Um, President Nixon lauded the bill as a significant piece of social legislation. Although he disagreed with specific provisions, he believed it would help attain, quote, the goal we all want to achieve, the protection of Americans on the job. The Chamber of Commerce, uh, Commerce termed it as a substantial victory for those in industry seeking a fair yet effective law. AFL-CIO President George Meany called it a long step toward a safe and healthy workplace. President Nixon signed the Milestone Occupational Safety and Health Act, or OSHA, on of 1970 in a ceremony at the Labor Department. I George... did not realize we've only had OSHA for like 40 years. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. Yeah. George Meany and other labor figures, um, leaders in the business community, and prominent members of Congress were present. The ceremony ended the three-year legislative struggle. Um, so that's like the story of OSHA. Uh, I use one major source for this story. A government resource. I think it's OSHA's website, maybe. Um, but I noted it kept out two really important events that led to some factory reforms, and they both included mainly women, which I guess I'm not surprised it was kept out. Just disappointed. Um, but I'm not keeping them out. So as a very, 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 very brief version of this, um, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory of Greenwich Village in New York City yeah. experienced the deadliest industrial tragedy in the city and one of the nation's, nation's worst in March 1911. So sad. 146 workers were killed, 123 of them women and girls, and 23 men. The fire was so deadly because the doors to the stairwells and exits were locked a common practice at the time to prevent workers from taking unauthorized breaks to reduce theft. Many of the workers could not escape from the burning building and jump from the high windows. The fire led to legislation requiring improved factory safety standards and helped spur the growth of the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union, which Sorry. fought for better working conditions for sweatshop workers. Um, and lastly, the Radium Girls were female factory workers who contracted radiation poisoning from painting watch dials with self-luminous paint. The incidents occurred at three different factories beginning around the early 20s. I'll cover this, or she will cover this in, at some point in, in at all. Um, after being told that the paint was harmless, the women in each facility ingested deadly amounts of radium after being instructed to point their brushes on their lips in order to give them a fine tip. Women were instructed to point their brushes in this way because using rags or a water rinse caused them to use more time and material. 
Five of the women in New Jersey challenged their employer in a case over the right of individual workers who contract occupational diseases to sue their employers under New, York, New Jersey's occupational injuries law, which at the time had a two-year statute of limitations, but settled out of court in 1928. Five women in Illinois who were employees of the Radium Dial Company sued their employer under Illinois law, winning damages in 1938. And that concludes my story of the history of OSHA. Oof. So I thought OSHA had been around way longer. Yeah, and I did not know that. Yeah, not very long. As somebody who works in an industry that is very OSHA heavy, that's all new to me. Really? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the road we got there on was pretty bad. Like, I'm glad we're there, and I'm glad yeah. now it just can be summed up in funny memes. But, mm-hmm. uh... But also surprise, surprise, the Nixon administration. Right, they did something good. That's really <laughs> Of all the administrations, uh, yeah. yeah. Has it. Like, I, my money wasn't on that one. I gotta be real honest. Like, you started talking about Johnson, like, uh, you know, I, I know Johnson wasn't the Lyndon greatest. Lyndon be doing some stuff. But, but then you got to the Nixon, I was like, don't end <laughs> this with Nixon. <laughs> Sorry. You just did that to me with a full mouth of beer. I'm sorry. But yes, Lyndon do be doing <laughs> Oh my goodness. But not that, although he did try really hard. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, that was sad. It, I have news. It only gets worse. Oh man. Um, so get your Snuggie. <laughs> Refill your beverage. Cuddle yeah. your closest animal. Yeah, um, this one's rough. Um, Simone... Uh, sent this one in also and honestly i was astonished of how i had never literally never heard of this i had neither i like did a brief google search and was like what (laughs) like it's insane to me Mm -hmm. um that we that this just isn't a thing that's either widely known or taught or talked about um it's awful so here we go never mind i'll save that commentary um, so this is the story of Unit 731. Uh, Unit 731 is short for the Manchu Detachment 731, also known as the Kamo Detachment and the Ishi Unit. Um, it was a covert biological and chemical warfare research and development unit of the Imperial Japanese Army. Um, they engaged in lethal human experimentation and biological weapons. Uh, during the Second Sino-Japanese War from 1937 to 1945 and World War II. Um, This unit was broken up into eight divisions. So Division I performed research on the bubonic plague, cholera, anthrax, typhoid, and tuberculosis using live human subjects. For this purpose, a prison was constructed to contain around three to 400 people. Division 2 was research for biological weapons to be used in the field, in particular production of devices to spread the germs and parasites. Division 3 was for the production of shells containing biological agents. Division 4 was bacteria mass production and storage. Division 5 was for the training of personnel, and Division 6 through 8 were for equipment, medical, and admin units. So... Japan starts their biological weapons program in the 1930s, partly because when biological weapons were banned by the Geneva Convention in 1925, they reasoned the ban verified the effectiveness of it as a weapon. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I can't argue with the logic, right? Yep. Definitely, they definitely didn't ban it because it was shit. Because it was good. Yeah. Um, Japan's occupation of Manchuria began in 1931 after the Japanese invasion. Um, during this time, they decided to build out uh, Unit 731 in Manchuria because the occupation not only gave the Japanese an advantage of separating um, their research station from their island, but it also gave them access to as many Chinese individuals as they wanted to use for experimental subjects. Why use your own people when you can use somebody else? Right, and you want to geographically distance yourself if you're practicing for biological warfare. Yeah, I can see why you wouldn't want to practice that on an island. Of your own. Of yours. We're, with your own people. So, you know, just... I don't even know if it was their own people they were that worried about. As much as they were just like, mm, it's a little close to home, and that's where it affects me. Yeah. Just based on... Yeah. So, you know, um, they just 
took over this area of China and then just started experimenting on people. It only gets worse. Yep. <laughs> um, so they viewed the Chinese as no-cost research subjects, oh. and they hoped they could use this advantage to lead the world in biological warfare. A prize that no one should win. Like, no like, one wants to win that. The contest no one was participating right? in. No one wins. No one wins. Uh, the majority of uh, research subjects were Chinese, um, but we talk about later that there are many people. So, in 1932, Surgeon General Shiro Ishii, Chief Medical Officer of the Imperial Japanese Army, um, was placed in command of the Army Epidemic Prede Prevention Research Laboratory, or APRIL. <laughs> uh, Ishii organized a secret research group called the Togo Unit uh, for chemical and biological experimentation in Manchuria. He's like the Adolf Eichner of uh, Japan. Yeah. yeah. Eichmann or Eichner? It doesn't matter. Eichner. But, but yeah, you would... <laughs> And you know about that guy. We all yeah, know, we all about, know that about that guy. We yeah, all know about the guy. Well, I, I think I know why we're not going to know about this so much. Only because of the first, like, three sentences I read when I looked this up. But we'll get there, I imagine. When I found out why we didn't know about it, I got big mad. Oh, I think I know why. <laughs> but I don't want to spoil it for those listeners. But waiting. also the the out, the German-Japan ally yeah. now makes more sense. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, because yeah. it's one of those things that, like, I didn't get right. Like, studying World War II, Japan seems like an odd contender mm -hmm. for this. But then you read this, and no, 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 it's not. No, it's not. <sighs> it also it also explains why Germany held Japan higher than Italy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, yeah. There's a lot here. It's terrible. Um, so, <sighs> Ishii proposed uh, this... Biological and Chemical Weapons Research Unit in 1930, after a two-year trip abroad um, on grounds that Western powers were developing their own programs like this. The world's worst LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, so one of Ishii's main supporters inside the army uh, was, oh, I'm going to mess this man's, up, man's name up, Colonel Kuizumi, maybe? We're skipping that first name. Sorry, dude. Uh, who later served as Japan's health minister from 1941 to 1945. Koizumi joined, had joined a secret poison gas research committee in 1915 during World War I, when he and other Imperial Japanese Army officers were impressed by the successful German use of chlorine gas, in which the Allies suffered 5,000 deaths and 15,000 wounded as a result of this chemical attack. Yeah, you know how you get impressed when you see a You're like, bunch Damn! of chlorine gas doing its thing? Oh. I mean, I get that the Japanese are all about efficiency, but this just seems like overkill. But our shock Overkill? Well. <laughs> right. Overkill for sure. Yeah. But wait, it gets worse. Um, so Unit Togo was set into motion in the Zhangoma Fortress, a prison and experimentation camp. Prisoners brought to Zhangoma included common criminals, captured bandits, anti-Japanese partisans, as well as political prisoners, and people rounded up on, frankly, fake charges. Mm -hmm. Prisoners were generally well-fed on a diet of rice or wheat, meat, fish, and occasionally even alcohol because they were trying to mimic normal health at the beginning of these experiments. Mm. Then... Over several days, prisoners would be experimented on, which we will talk about here in a minute. A prison break in the autumn of 1934 uh, jeopardized the facility's secrecy, and an explosion in 1935 led Ishii to shut down the Zhangoma Fortress. He then received authorization to move to a, um, a much nicer, larger facility. Because that's how we fix that. Mm -hmm. In 1936, Emperor Hirohito issued a decree authorizing the expansion of the unit and its integration into the Kwantung Army as the Epidemic Pre Prevention Department. It was divided up at that time into the Ishii Unit, the Wakamatsu Unit, uh, within base 
Tzin King. Mm. Uh, <laughs> from August 1940 on, the units were collectively known as the Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department of the Kantuang Army. In addition to the establishment of Unit 731, the decree also called for the creation of additional biological warfare development units uh, called the Kwantung Army Military Horse Epidemic Prevention Workshop, later referred to as Manchuria Unit 100. And a chemical warfare development unit uh, for sister chemical and biological warfare units uh, were founded throughout major Chinese cities. Um, and they were all referred to as the Epidemic and Water Supply Units. All of these units comprised Ishii's network, which at its height in 1939, he oversaw 10,000 personnel working on these projects. Medical doctors and professors from Japan were attracted to Unit 731 because they had a rare opportunity to conduct human experimentation and the Army had strong financial backing. Okay. What an opportunity. Right? They picked me. Can't pass it. Yeah, like... <laughs> oh, wow. Like, I'm not sure if medical professionals in Japan take the same oath that people here do. I don't know if that's a universal standard or not. Uh, I don't know. But... Um, I am wondering, though... I don't know, obviously. I don't know anything about uh, as much as history of, like, Asian continent as i could right or probably we're should. americans um it shows no but the you have like option well there might there may have been an, uh, an asian one but like I, there was a lot of european history taught in our schools there was there, an asian history class i took it did you okay well then maybe you know like i don't know how early on people started associating over there we kind of talked about this in other world war one <laughs> episodes but like how people can uh differentiate between some of like oh that they're not even, like, really human. Like, disassociating that, like, human yeah. quality, taking it away from them. Yeah. I don't know how soon that started happening between, like, maybe Chinese and Japanese. Yeah, I mean, the, the, they they've have, been warring for Yeah, ever. they've been at each other's throats for... Ever. Ever. Right, but that was the same thing that was happening between the French and the Germans, and they still managed to sync up on, like, Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But... I don't and, think like, that happened here. They didn't have Or Christmas even the English stuff. and the French who were fighting together at that time. But, yeah. yeah. It's, um... It's just, it's nightmare fuel. Yeah. Um, and here, it, sorry, it gets worse. Um, but some shit we should know, frankly. Yeah. Um, so about these experiments. Test subjects were gathered from surrounding populations, and they were commonly referred to as, quote, logs. Oh. This was a joke, because oh. one of the original cover stories for the organization was that it was a lumber mill when they were questioned by local authorities. So when inquiring about how many test subjects had died that day, they would ask how many logs fell. They would burn the bodies down to nothing in the incinerator. You have to. Researchers in Unit 731 also published some of their results in peer-reviewed journals, writing as though the research had been conducted on non-human primates called Manchurian monkeys, or long-tailed monkeys. What the fuck? I was just about to say, peer review? Who, who was reviewing that wasn't actually there, but that makes more sense. Yeah, I guess you have to burn the bodies, right? I mean, they, they're infected yeah. with all these fucking diseases. Like, you can't just or, let them... So not everyone was infected, and we're okay. going to talk all about right, that. all right, all right. A lot of people were infected, but not everyone was infected. It, it's terrible. Um, so the, according... There's an American historian, Sheldon H. Harris. According to him, uh, the Togo unit employed some gruesome tactics to secure specimens of select body organs. If Ishii or one of his co-workers wished to do research on the human brain, they would order the guards to find them a useful sample. A prisoner would be taken from his cell. Guards would hold him down while another guard would smash the victim's head open with an axe. His brain would be extracted and taken off to the pathologist, and then the crematorium for the usual disposal of the body. Thousands of men, women, children, and infants interned at prisoner of war camps were subject to vivisection. I knew there was going to be kids. I knew which it was just is a matter of time. Dissection on someone who yep. is alive. Yep. Yep. I only uh, know that because of Sherlock. He used it once. <laughs> this is often performed without anesthesia and usually proves lethal. In a video 
interview a former Unit 731 member, Okawa Fukumatsu, admitted to having vivisected a pregnant woman. Vivisections were performed on prisoners after infecting them with various diseases. Researchers performed invasive surgery on prisoners, removing organs to, quote, study the effects on the human body. Prisoners had limbs amputated in order to study blood loss. Limbs were removed and sometimes reattached at the opposite side of the victim's body. Some prisoners had their stomachs surgically removed and attached their esophagus to their intestines to see what would happen. Um, what years? This is during World War II. They knew what was going to happen. This isn't... Yeah. 17 what the fuck like this they knew what was gonna happen yep. if you attach someone's esophagus to the okay yep all right i'm with you okay we're all on this together we're all <laughs> screaming collectively <laughs> okay cool just parts of organs such as the brain lungs and liver were removed from other people imperial japanese army surgeon ken yuasa suggests that practicing vivisection on human subjects was widespread even outside of Unit 731, estimating at least 1,000 Japanese personnel were involved in this practice in mainland China. Yuasa said that when he performed vivisections on captives, they were all for practice rather than research, and that these practices were routine among Japanese doctors stationed in China during the war. I don't think that should ever be routine. Yep. But it was. <laughs> okay. New York, the New York Times uh, interviewed a former member of Unit 731. He was insisting on anonymity. Uh, the former Japanese medical assistant recounted his experience, his first time dissecting a live human being who had been deliberately infected with the plague for purposes of developing plague bombs for the war. Um, and he said, I don't have the quote right here, but um, he said something about how, like, this person was just, like, tormented. And that for everyone else, it was just, like, Tuesday. And they were all, like, fine and hunky-dory with it. And that it impacted him only because it was his first one. I just, I mean, okay. So, a lot of psychology at work there, right? Like, so, this guy's horrified. Everybody else has normalized to it because you have to. It's like anybody who works in any Well, kind they of... signed up for it. Right. They but... signed up for it. The doctors were coming. Like, this is an MA. But right. But the doctors... No, I'm saying, like, anybody who would have been, like, his position. Like, you're... It's... Anybody who works in any kind of trauma field, like, they're going to eventually normalize to it. You have to. It's like what your brain does. Yeah. But also, this poor fucking person. I'm sorry. Um, I've read a little bit about Plague, and it sounds like it really sucks to have... Um, and you're in so much pain and agony from the plague, and now you're getting dissected without alive, anesthesia. without anesthesia, and no one, that's, that is a nightmare. Yeah, so he and no, talks and about, nobody can hear you, or that's what it seems like. Yeah, so he, he talks about how he heard the man scream and scream and scream and scream and scream until eventually he stopped. Yeah. And it's nightmare fuel. Um, they also deliberately infected fleas with the plague and sprayed them over Chinese cities, setting off plague epidemics. And they did similar things with typhoid and paratyphoid germs. Fun fact, they determined the paratyphoid was the most effective. Uh, they also did similar things with cholera, anthrax, smallpox, and botulism. During the final stages of World War II, there was a mission planned to send kamikaze pilots to San Diego with plague bombs. Japan surrendered five weeks before this mission. Ooh. Yeah. So, like... So, so <laughs> I, I know... I, know, I was just rethinking some things. I, I, <laughs> I, know, I know the bomb. The bomb right. is always, like, the, the horrendous... But I, I never thought I'd be... <laughs> Thankful for it? I know, yeah. not necessarily. Well, well not okay, thankful. yeah. Thankful not is a thankful, weird word. Um, thankful is a weird word, right? Because it was, it was, it was, it was dropped we, on non. We atrocity them before they atrocityed us. Right, but we also dropped the bomb on like it wasn't. These weren't military targets. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not thankful for it. Civilians. But I, I kind of come to a conclusion in my mind that we should not have done that. Right. And I'm not necessarily turned around on it, guys. Uh, I was just thinking about some yep, things like. That's fair. 
damn, like, I don't think we should have dropped a bomb on, like, non-military. But this they unit was the, specifically. send everybody to the plague in San Diego. Yep. And then spread it throughout everywhere. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah, think how quick that would have spread to All Los Angeles, California, San yeah. Francisco. Mm-hmm. Everywhere. Jeez. Other things they tested on people. Grenades. Flamethrowers. Different types of bombs. So, like, I feel like that research is already well Yeah, in every war ever. Grenades? What does this do? What do you fucking think it does? Exactly what it's supposed to do. What happens if you set them on fire? I don't know. I've never seen it done before. Let's find out. Let's see how long they can withstand it. Let's see how long long it takes them to die. Uh, They also just stabbed people with bayonets just to watch them die. They would deprive people of food and water and let them starve and dehydrate to death. They'd put them in low-pressure tanks until their eyes popped out of their sockets. They would hang them upside down until they died. They bled people to death. They electrocuted people. People were spun to death in a centrifuge, which I can't imagine dying and being dizzy. They injected people with horse blood and seawater to see what would happen. They x-rayed people to death. One man was cut in half vertically and then placed into formaldehyde jars. Some of the tests have been described as psychopathically sadistic with no conceivable military application. For example, one experiment documented the time it took for three-day-old infants to freeze to death. Mm. They performed frostbite testing. They performed rape and forced pregnancy testing. They practiced. Oh, del- yeah. Okay. I yep. was gonna. I was gonna say trigger warning, but it's too late. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, they practiced deliberate infection of syphilis through rape because of forced pregnancy testing and rape in general, just running rampant here. And there were many, many accounts. Of men just going in and raping the female prisoners. No one's gonna stop them. Exactly. No one's um, gonna stop you if you want to do anything. To and them. you can always, as just long say, as you oh, fucking write it down. Yeah. Well, and yeah, because then you just say it was for research. But but there were accounts of them just like, yeah, no, we just raped the women just because. Um, because of this, many babies were born. There were no survivors from these camps. Between the experiments and the biological warfare attempts, there was an estimated 580,000 deaths at the hands of these units. And then in situations where the plague spread to animals, they estimate an additional 30,000 people dying from animal spreading of the plague. Most of these prisoners were Chinese, but they did also include Russians, Mongolians, Koreans, and a small number of Europeans. Americans, New Zealanders, Australians, and Indians. Same way they can get their hands on. Yep. So in 1945, Japan surrenders, and they have to dismantle this unit post-haste. The remaining 300 prisoners were gassed or poisoned. All of the Chinese workers were shot. Every member of the unit was expected to take these secrets to their grave. They gave everyone a cyanide pill to take with them in case they were captured and questioned. And they blew up the compound in their final move. Now I know what you're thinking. Surely these people paid for their crimes. This part, unfortunately, was in the synopsis that I read. Americans got there first and had no idea what they were walking into. Upon finding out, the lieutenant took the information to General Douglas MacArthur, who was the supreme commander of the Allied powers and responsible for rebuilding Japan during the Allied occupation. This man secretly granted immunity to all physicians involved, including the leader, in exchange... Was it, and why? In exchange for providing their research information to America, but not the rest of the Allies in the war. In the Tokyo War, tri- war Crimes Tribunal, there was only one ref- reference made to poisonous serums being used on Chinese civilians, and it's believed... That reference was accidental. When I have a question, was this um, was this during that time America was great? 
Yeah, we're making it there. We're trying to make it great right. again. So this is like we want to go back. Like, yeah, to this. To this, this. this isn't that long ago. Um, it's really not. There's still people who are alive. Um, not at those camps, of course, but like the physicians because they were given immunity. So yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. So, this is when America was great. Yep. So while <laughs> German physicians were charged and sentenced for their crime and crimes, and we have the publicity about it, and we know about yeah, it. Yeah, we. I mean, there is the huge Nuremberg trials, right? Yeah. yeah. None of these physicians were prosecuted. There was a separate tribunal that charged nine physicians not associated with Unit 731 who had performed vivisections on captured American pilots because we care about those. Two of them were sentenced to death and the rest were put into prison for 15 to 20 years. In 1997, international lawyer Conan Su... Su mm, not O'Brien? Nope. Suchia, maybe a fun ginger though, I don't know, uh, filed a class action lawsuit against the Japanese government demanding reparations for the actions of Unit 731. What? That was years ago. Right? (laughs) That's Uh, not affecting anyone now. Using evidence filed Uh. by Professor Makoto Ueda of the Rikyo University, uh, all levels of the Japanese court system found the suit to be baseless. Oh, fuck you. No findings of fact were made about the existence of human experimentation, but the court's ruling was that reparations are determined by international treaties and not national courts. In August of 2002, the Tokyo District Court ruled for the first time that Japan had engaged in biological warfare. Presiding Judge Koji Iwata ruled that Unit 731, on orders of the Imperial Japanese Army Headquarters, used bacteriological weapons on Chinese civilians between 1940 and 1942, spreading diseases including the plague and typhoid in the cities of Kyushu, Ningbo, and Changde, I think, I don't know. Um, however, he rejected victim- victims' compensation <laughs> claims on the grounds that they had already been settled by international peace treaties. I'm not going to give you money. <laughs> what? In October 2003, a member of Japan's House of Representatives filed an inquiry. (laughs) Prime Minister Junichiro Koizumi uh, responded that the Japanese government did not possess any such records related to Unit 731, but recognized the gravity of the matter and would publicize any records in the future. In April of 2018... The National Archives of Japan released the names of 3,607 members of Unit 731. Uh, we will not be naming them here, A, because that would take forever, and B, they deserve to be forgotten. Um, and that is the horrifyingly sad story of Unit 731, and something I didn't put in here, but now I'm inspired <laughs> to say, is... Um, the reason the records don't exist is because Americans seized all of the records yeah. and microfilmed everything except the records around Unit 731. Yeah, no, those are in a filing cabinet somewhere in someone's desk. Yeah. And now you know about that. And now um, you know about that, thanks to Simone. Yeah. Um, uh, honestly. Yeah. And uh, we should know about it. Yeah. You know, like, it's heavy as shit and it's sad, but I mean... Holy shit. Why don't we know about that? Well, because we were never fucking supposed to, right? Right. And, and so in Japanese schools, uh, they teach that there was a Unit 731, and that is all they say. The end. It's more than they gave us. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's <laughs> so, their shit, right? Yeah. Well, but, it's more than we give us, even on our own shit. True. true. You're right. You're um, right. So, but, yeah. yeah. So that, um, there you go. If you needed nightmare fuel. Yeah. You're welcome. And if you didn't need nightmare fuel, too bad. If you were having a good week, oh well. <laughs> uh, go hug your kid. Dog. Or a dog cat. or a cat or some, you know. But hug your child if you have a child. Cause Don't hug just any one. child. <laughs> Please hug a child. You, you are authorized to hug. Would you say it is was this how this podcast not to hug random children? It is, yes, definitely. Please, please don't hug strangers' kids. Yeah. If you do, um, please feel free to call Michael Kennedy at <laughs> O'Brien Hatfield and Reese. Thank you. Um, yeah, so, well, I can't say it's a good story, but it was an informative story. It's, <laughs> I think it's stuff that we should know. Like, I was Absolutely. reading this story, and I was just, 
I remember reading, like, there was, like, four topic sentences, but I think the last one was which America got all the records, and so I was like, I think I know why we don't know. Yeah. Um, and I was like, what the fuck is going on? We know all of the shit about the, the, the experiments that were performed on the prisoners in the concentration camps. Right. You know about I, Adolf, Adolf Eichner, or Eichmann, whatever the fuck his name was. Um... You, you may not know everything that he did, but we know a lot. We know that he was super interested in experimenting on twins and, and all this stuff and, yeah. and things that he would do. And you, I guess another, well, maybe one of the bigger reasons, not the biggest reason, because that would be America, but the, one of the bigger reasons is there's people who survived those. Yeah. There's survivors yeah. who tell the story. Yeah. This and has there's none. zero survivors. They killed yeah. everyone. The only people who exist. Switched earth. Yeah, yeah, the only people who are around talk about it are the physicians that were granted immunity. <laughs> and, and don't want to talk about it. And I guess yeah. the military personnel. So, yeah, right. nightmare fuel. Anyway, that's this week's episode. Yeah, um, yeah. but, uh, so yeah, go go get your blanket. Grab a drink if you can. You know, go go watch a Disney movie or something. <laughs> right. Um, and enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, um, thanks, we look, thanks for listening, guys. Yes, thank you, Eric, for being on this episode. Thank um, you, Simone, for being our best PR person. Yes, and absolutely. And teaching us things. Yep, and we look forward to seeing you guys next time. But in the meantime, you can find us at our website at historywoes.com. You can find us on our Patreon. If you want to be a Patreon, shout out to Patreons. Um, we love them. Yeah, uh, where if you give us a request on an episode, your request goes straight to the top. Um, and you can also find us on our Instagram, which is also where our link tree is, which is forward slash history woes. And you can listen to us wherever your podcasts are streaming and we will see and we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. 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 Bye.